Well, I can tell that uh, we're almost at fall. We're filling up in here. We'll work on some new seats for next week. But uh, uh, we're going to be going to our time of teaching. Uh, by the way, did you see the new website? So you see the next web- website out there? If you haven't checked it out, we, uh, we, we launched that on uh, Friday. It's kind of interim website until our next uh, kind of big release comes, but it's looking good. If you haven't checked it out, encourage you to. But we're going to go into our time of teaching right now. Inside your program is a green and white message note sheet. There's actually a lot of things in there today. I'll talk about some of them more later. But I'm uh, going to take that out, especially if you're new. You'll definitely need this to help follow along, be very helpful. So if you guys are all set and ready to go, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Yeah. All right, let's pray. God, we're just thankful to be here as your people in your place. And we are excited about what you're doing in our lives. And most of all, we're just excited about you. And God, as we come today and talk about what does it look like to pursue you, uh, to be trained, uh, changed, transformed, to grow, uh, to be a lifelong learner. God, we pray that you would open up our eyes in some new ways, show us the next steps in our transformation, our growth process. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, today we're uh, continuing the series that we've been in for about the last couple months now. It's called Scent, um, something about darkness. My slide's not up, so I can't remember. But uh, <laughs> what is it? Piercing the darkness. Yeah, I was kind of dependent on that. Uh, so uh, anyway, uh, uh, so uh, this series uh, is actually the fourth, um, fourth uh, kind of mini-series of a longer-running series. It's called Sent, which is a study of the, uh, the New Testament book of Acts, which is one of the most important books in our New Testament. It describes the, the rise, the rapid growth of the early movement of Jesus right after his resurrection uh, up until like the next 30 years as the message of Jesus kind of streams across the Roman Empire and just grows rapidly. And so in this fourth, in this fourth mini-series, uh, we're watching as one of the key leaders of the movement, a man by the name of the Apostle Paul has recruited a small team, and he's going out into the area surrounding the Aegean Sea. So like today, it'd be modern-day Turkey and Greece, sharing the message of Jesus where it's never gone before. Now today, uh, last week we watched as Paul had come into the ancient city of Corinth, spent two years there. He initially came in with fear and trembling, but God met him, empowered him, used him and his team in a powerful way. And by the time they leave, a, a great little church has been birthed there in Corinth. So today, he's going to be leaving now, and he's going to be heading back to his home church, where he started off uh, a few years before in Antioch of Syria. So we're going to need to get oriented. So there in your note sheet, you have a map. Um, you actually have a couple maps today, one on the, on the outside, one on the inside. We're on the outside right now. Um, it looks more like a National Geographic today. But um, this would be helpful just plotting our, our journey. So if you look on the left side of the map, about halfway up, find the city of Corinth that's in southern Greece. You may even notice right b- uh, below it, there's a seaport called Sencria, and that will actually come into play today. So what's going to happen is Paul is going to leave from the, the seaport of Sencria. He's going to sail across the ocean 240 miles to uh, Ephesus, which is always a little bit treacherous. We'll talk about that later. And then he'll spend a short time in Ephesus head south all the way to Caesarea, find that on your map, um, which is the, the Roman seat of government in the province of Judea, the governmental seat. Then he'll, he'll head quickly up to Jerusalem, kind of visit the church there shortly, the mother church, then head north 300 miles to Caesarea and to Antioch, which is his home church, all right? And so this is, today we're coming to the end of his second um, Jesus-sharing expedition, second missionary journey, all right? So with that as an intro, let's uh, open our Bibles. And uh, let's go to uh, Acts chapter 18. We'll pick it up at verse 18 and see what happens. Get your apps. Go ahead and turn those on. So uh, in verse 18, so Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. And so as we've learned the, the last week, he was actually there about two years. 
And uh, he left the brothers and sisters, and he sailed for Syria, his, where, you know, where Antioch is, accompanied by this couple that they've become close friends. He'd lived with them for a while, Priscilla and Aquila, gifted teachers. And before he sailed, he had his hair cut, got some tattoos. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> Jesus is Lord. Um, uh, anyway, at Syncria. So um, what's interesting is the reason he got his hair cut, I mean, Luke doesn't normally tell us where he gets his hair cut. Uh, the reason is because of a vow he had taken. So we don't really know what this is about. Uh, most scholars believe that because of the mentioning of the vow, remember in the Old Testament, Samson was a Nazarite, you don't cut your hair. Uh, there's a vow in Numbers chapter 6 that you take called the Nazarite vow. We won't go into that. But most scholars believe that, that this was a vow that he took. And often you would take it as a, a vow to thank God for what he had done in the past or to ask his protection and blessing in the future. But for whatever reason, uh, he takes a vow. We'll talk more about that in a few weeks. But anyway, um, he takes his vow there, and then they sail off. Now, uh, they're going to they're gonna sail uh, to Ephesus, right? 240 miles against open sea, against, uh, through open seas. Now, this was very uh, dangerous in the ancient world. In the ancient world, you would normally skirt the, the coast of wherever you're sailing, but from time to time, you have to cross the sea. It's just very treacherous, you know, small ships, uh, Lynn and I actually took this trip last year. We, we sailed from Corinth uh, to uh, Ephesus, the so 240 miles. It was, uh, of course, in a larger ship. We were supposed to stop at the island of Mykonos, the Greek, just for dinner uh, and for a few hours of exploration, but the seas were so high, we couldn't even port. So imagine, you know, in a small ship, uh, kind of a, always a scary thing, which may be in why he took the vow. We don't really know. But uh, anyway... Uh, he arrives at Ephesus. Now, Ephesus, third or fourth largest city in the Roman Empire, capital of the Roman province of Asia, big place. And, uh, but he's going to leave Priscilla and Aquila there. So this, this uh, competent couple, they become friends, colleagues. They're going to stay in Ephesus, make their home there, open business, open shop. Remember, they're tent makers. He himself goes into the synagogue, which he always does when he goes into a new city, and he begins sharing Jesus with the Jews. And when they asked him to spend more time, so it was actually going well, he declined. So normally he would get kicked out. Uh, it was actually going well, but he felt like he needed to get on his way. He's on a schedule. But he did promise, I will come back if it's God's will. And he's going to keep that promise at the end of our study today, about a year and a half later. So they set sail from Ephesus, and he's going to go all the way down to Caesarea. Now, Caesarea is a very important um, city. Uh, it's going to become important in the life of Paul. Uh, it is the seat of government in Rome, uh, in Judea, uh, where, where Jerusalem's at. Uh, it's, uh, this is where the Roman governors would uh, govern from. So you think Pontius Pilate, 25 years later, this was where he would be at. Uh, now, uh, in Caesarea, major city that uh, Herod the Great had built. In fact, you have a couple of pictures here just to give you a feel for this because it'll become important in the coming weeks. So we're going to go to the screen. Uh, this is the theater, uh, and uh, if you go today, Caesarea, those of you who have been with us to Israel, uh, we sat in this theater, um, and so you can see the, the seacoast there. This theater holds still, I believe it's about 6,000 people today. Uh, interesting, it's still used for live concerts today. In fact, um, in Israel, the, the sign that you've made it big as a musician or uh, a performer is that they invite you to come and sing at Caesarea, and it's kind of like you have made it to the big time. And so, um, so, so that's uh, the, the, the uh, theater. Uh, next slide is going to show the Hippodrome. Remember, it's very Roman culture. So they're having horse races, chariot races. Anyone seen Ben-Hur yet? Yeah. Okay, great. I can say whatever I want. So, uh, 
interesting on this slide, if you look on the right side of the slide, uh, about halfway up, you see a little platform. I don't know if you can make that out. That is where the Roman governor would sit. So he could watch the horse races. Uh, it was always down towards this end of the hippodrome because that's where the accidents were. And just like NASCAR, that's why you watch, right? So uh, he would be able to watch the accidents as they made the turn around the end. And then he looks out and he's got a beautiful view of the Mediterranean. It's good to be the king. So, uh, so that's that. And then the next picture I took from my drone when we were there. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> This is looking back towards the coast. Now, everything we just saw is in this shot. So upper right, you see the theater. Uh, on the upper left, you see the hippodrome. But what's interesting is notice this promontory that kind of leads out. This is not a land mass. This is King Herod the Great, incredible builder, built the temple in Jerusalem and Masada and all that. He wanted to have his palace out in the ocean, surrounded by the Mediterranean. So they built that platform out into the water, uh, and he built this huge palace so he could be surrounded uh, as he's doing his thing in the palace by the Mediterranean. Not bad, all right? So that's Caesarea. Paul will later be uh, in that palace, and he will be kept under guard for two years there. He'll be arrested there later on in Acts, right? So, so we'll move on now. So in verse 21, they land at Caesarea. He went up to Jerusalem, about 65 miles away, two or three-day trip, greeted the church, the mother church, and then he goes north to Antioch, uh, about 300 miles to his home church. Now, when he gets there, of course, he's going to share, I'm sure, uh, what God's done the last few years on his second missionary journey, but then he's going to be ready to go out on journey number three. And so after spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there, and he traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia. So now open, your, open up and get map number two. So map number two, find the right side, find Antioch again, his home church. And so you can notice there he's going to go north, and then he's going to go west uh, through the area of uh, Galatia. And what he's going to do, he's going to be visiting on this third journey all the churches he started on his first and second journey. And so these first churches from his first journey, remember way back in Acts 13 and 14, uh, he goes through Tarsus, which is home city, but then Derby, Lystra, and Antioch. And so that's how he starts his journey as he heads towards Ephesus. Now, uh, it says he's, uh, now, now Luke is going to do a sidebar now. He's going to leave us hanging with Paul. We'll come back to that in a minute. Do a quick sidebar. And it's really fascinating because out of the blue, Luke is going to give us two accounts of one man and one group of men who have been deeply influenced by the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, this is really weird. Remember, um, Luke is writing a two-volume account of the life of Jesus and his movement. First volume is Luke. Second volume, we have not heard. I mean, John the Baptist died like 25 years before this. Um, we've not heard of, of him since the early chapters in, uh, in, in the Gospel of Luke. And now, all of a sudden, Luke is going to do this sidebar and talk about two groups of people one person and one group that are deeply impacted by John the Baptist. And it doesn't have anything to do with the storyline of the Apostle Paul. And so the question is, why? And we'll come back to that later. But let's see what he does. Number, his first story is about a, a Jew named Apollos. So meanwhile, verse 24, a Jew named Apollos, who's a native of what? Alexandria. Anyone know where Alexandria is? Egypt, awesome, that's really good. You're like the first service where someone screamed that out. Yeah, 
So um, yeah, ge- world geography, not, we're not big on here. But uh, Alexandria was a major city. It was the second largest city in the Roman Empire after Rome. Uh, major city of education and learning. Uh, some of the top universities in the whole empire were in uh, Alexandria. The largest library in the empire, 400,000 volumes in Alexandria. So it's a place of intelligentsia. It's a, the, the Harvard. It's the Yale. And this Jew, uh, Apollos, is from there. He's a very learned man. In the Greek, it means eloquent as well as learned. Um, and so he's a very bright guy. Uh, think of him like PhD from uh, like, uh, 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 Yale Divinity School or Harvard Divinity School. So uh, he's going to go from Alexandria. He's going to move to Ephesus. Now, in the ancient world, uh, if, you're, you know, if you're not poor, if you're more wealthy, this was very common. You travel a lot in the ancient world. So he moves there. He's a very learned man, really educated. He's a thorough knowledge of scriptures, knows his Bible really well, probably educated in the top schools, Jewish schools, and so on. Now, he's been instructed in the way of the Lord, so he knows something about Jesus, uh, and he spoke with great passion, great fervor, and he taught about Jesus accurately. So, however, as we're going to see, there are like missing gaps in his knowledge of Jesus and the story of Jesus. And the way that Luke is going to describe this, he's going to say that Apollos only knew about the baptism of John the Baptist. Now, the baptism of John the Baptist was in Luke chapter 3. That's a long time ago. And so we're not sure exactly what he knew because he'd been instructed in the ways of Jesus some, and yet he's obviously in the dark of the bigger picture of the story of Jesus. So he's a he, we're going to see he's a disciple of John the Baptist, knows something about Jesus, but he's missing some really important information. So when he gets there, uh, in verse, uh, in verse 25, it says he'd been, uh, he'd been taught about Jesus uh, accurately. So what he was teaching was right, but he only knew the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, and Priscilla and Aquila, our key couple, right, uh, colleagues of Paul, they heard him, and they, and they see his potential. This guy, he loves Jesus. He is passionate. He is gifted. He's well-educated. He's articulate. They see the potential, so they invite him to their home, much like last week they had invited the Apostle Paul, and they explained to him the way of God more adequately. So they, they brought him aside, and they said, hey, what you're teaching is great, but there's some things about Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, maybe the coming of the Spirit. We don't know everything about it. But they say, you know, there's, you're kind of missing some things here. So they're going to fill him in. That's story number one. Okay? Now, story number two. Story number two, very similar. Um, while Apollos was in, oh, I skipped, I skipped ahead. Let's, keep, let's go back. I didn't finish story number one. Verse 27. So when Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, so Achaia is Greece. The capital of Achaia is Corinth. So he wants to go where Priscilla and Aquila just moved from. And uh, the brothers and sisters encouraged him. And they wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. Um, And so this is common in the ancient church that when a teacher, a leader, a pastor would move from one area to another area, the church would write a letter of recommendation. They didn't have email. They didn't have uh, mail or phone. They couldn't say, hey, this guy's a good guy. They would write a letter of recommendation. Hey, this good leader, theology's good, character's good. You can trust him. So they did that, and when he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. So he's a really big help to the church at Corinth. We'll talk about that later. 
He, and he also vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, so not just teaching the church, but out in the culture as he's confronting and sharing the message of Jesus publicly with Jews who don't believe that Jesus is Messiah, and he's proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So he's doing great apologetic work, so a big impact there, okay? That's story number one. Now, story number two. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul was going to take the road through the interior. So if you go back to map number two, he's done now with, uh, with the second Antioch, you know, Iconium and Antioch. He's going to continue through the interior. It's a 1,500-mile journey from his home, Antioch, all the way to Ephesus. And uh, on the way, he meets this group of disciples. Um, and it's interesting because when we hear the word disciple, we think Christ follower, right? This is the word uh, Luke has used all the way through Acts as followers of Jesus. They're, they're disciples. But what we're going to find out here is that these disciples, they're not disciples of Jesus. They're disciples of John the Baptist. In fact, they haven't even heard of Jesus. It's like they're in a time warp. Right? Like they're, catch this, they're 1,800 miles away from Israel. A group of 12 men, maybe their families, possibly living in community, they have heard about John the Baptist. We don't know how, but maybe they knew him personally and moved here. Did they just hear about his teaching? But they've bought in that he's a true prophet of God. Now, what was John's message? John's message was that after him, someone would come, a Messiah would come, and that um, they needed to get ready for his coming. So John's message was a baptism of repentance, that you would turn to God, turn from yourself, uh, start showing fruits of repentance, loving God, loving people, prepare your heart for the coming of Messiah. And what John had said is, after me, someone's coming, I'm not worthy to even wash his feet, take his sandals off, be a servant, uh, and the one who comes after me, he will baptize in the Holy Spirit. In other words, he'll issue, he will kick off this whole new era of the human race where God will pour out his spirit, the kingdom of God will come. And so Paul meets these disciples, and as he's talking with them, he's realizing something is wrong. Something is missing from their spiritual journey. He's kind of assumed that they're followers of Jesus because they're followers of John. They know about John. But the more he's talking, he's realizing that there's something wrong here. So he's going to ask them a, a very penetrating question. And he asks me, he says, hey, did you receive the Holy Spirit? When you like, did you receive the Holy Spirit? And they're going to give a very fascinating answer. They're going to say, we've never even heard of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is weird because this was John's message. After me, was one's coming, he'll baptize in the Holy Spirit. And so Paul's going to say, oh, time out. Like Priscilla and Aquila took Apollos aside, he's going to take them aside. He's going to say, oh, well, John said to believe in the one that would come after him, and he taught him about Jesus his life, death, resurrection, and then he lays hands on them and prays for them to receive the Holy Spirit, and they do, and they speak in languages. They've never learned tongues, but in the Greeks, languages, and they prophesy worshiping God. Now, it's really interesting. I want to do a little sidebar here. Uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time here because we've talked about it two or three times in Acts already, but every week we have new people coming to Rocky Peak, and this is really important, right? So, um, I want to hit this again, either for those of you who are brand new or for those, those of you who are just kind of slow. <laughs> um, all right, so, just kidding. 
And so, uh, <laughs> I'm not sure what you said, but I don't want to know. Uh, all right. So, um, in the book of Acts, there are four times in the book of Acts, only four times, when we're told the Holy Spirit came on a group of people and they began to worship God in languages they'd never learned or prophesied, right? Um, and uh, so first thing I want you to notice is that in the book of Acts, it never happens to an individual, always happens to a group, first thing. Now, just to be clear on this, I'm not saying in the early church it never happened to an individual. I'm not saying it doesn't happen to individuals today. All I'm saying is that as Luke is telling his story and teaching us what it means to be a follower of Jesus, that four times in the book of Acts that we're told the Holy Spirit comes, always comes to a group. Secondly, that every time it happens is when the message of Jesus is crossing new barriers. When it's coming to a new group of people that up to that point, the early church didn't think could be saved, didn't think could be part of the messianic kingdom, didn't think could receive the Holy Spirit. So the first time it happens, remember the the early church was all Jews, so they thought it was only for Jews, right? So the early church, uh, the first time it happened was on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the first believers, and we kick off this whole new era of 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 the coming of the Spirit and planet Earth, the prophets have predicted one day God would come to his people, right? That's number one. Number two is in Acts chapter eight, where the first Samaritans come to Jesus, and uh, up to that point, Jews don't think Samaritans can be saved. They come to Jesus, and Peter and John are sent down to make it very obvious that they too can receive the Holy Spirit. They too are part of the kingdom, because the Spirit is the ultimate sign that you've been accepted. Uh, the third time is even more bizarre in Acts 11, when the first Gentiles come to Christ. And in that case, God doesn't even wait for Peter to come around and lay hands God just says, I'm doing it because you may never get around to it. And so the gent- how crazy Gentiles, part of the Messianic kingdom, never saw that one coming. And the fourth time is here in Acts 19. And the question is, so why is God making a big deal about this? Why is Luke making a big deal? One of the four, and here's the thing. The more we study it, the more it becomes clear that in the early church in, in the first century, things weren't as clear as they are today. And there were many people that were pockets of people throughout the Roman that were followers of John the Baptist. They believed he was a true disciple and a true prophet. They had bought into John. They were followers of John. But either they didn't know about Jesus, like, you know, the 12 guys here, or they were, didn't understand the full story, like Apollos, and they didn't really understand that they needed not just to believe in John was a prophet, but to believe in the one that would come after. That, that believing in the one that came after was the key to moving in the kingdom and receiving the Spirit. And so uh, as you read through the Gospels and as you read through the book of Acts, if you read through it with this eye, it becomes very clear that this was an issue in the first century. And so both in the Gospels and in Acts, they make it really clear that John isn't the Messiah. It's not enough to believe in John. You have to believe in the one that comes after because the one that comes after will be the one who will baptize in the Holy Spirit. So John tells the story. So let's see how it goes. So he says in verse two, he asks them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we haven't even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And so Paul said, well, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism. And he said, well, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance 
He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. And so on hearing this, and I'm sure Paul filled them in on all the story of Jesus, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them. They spoke in tongues or languages, and they prophesied, and there were about 12 men at all, and all. And so with these two kind of sidebar incidents uh, that, that kind of Luke kind of shoehorns into this account of Ephesus, he launches his account of Paul's experience in Ephesus. And uh, we're going to spend the next, we're going to spend two weeks on this because, uh, two more weeks, because Paul's ministry in Ephesus by far is the high point of his ministry in all of Acts. God's going to do amazing things. And as a result, the message of Jesus is not just going to go to this fourth largest city of Ephesus and, and permeate the whole city. It's going to go out of Ephesus, Ephesus like a spiritual airline hub. The message is going to go out into the entire Roman province of Asia. And we'll, we'll be seeing that in the next few weeks. Right? But for today, what I want to do as we kind of kick into this uh, journey of Ephesus, the story of Ephesus, is I want to focus on one big picture principle that, that flows out of these two sidebar stories about Apollos and the, these 12 disciples on what I'm calling lifelong learning, all right? So there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called Learning 101, the big picture. And what I want to do is I want to start with one big picture principle that flows out of these two sidebar stories and then come back and ask three kind of penetrating uh, questions for our lives. And so here we go. Number one, uh, the big picture principle. Uh, the, fir- the big picture principle goes like this, that lifelong learning never stops. Now, some of you are saying, isn't that a bit redundant? Like you weren't sure whether to laugh or not. Uh, yes, it is redundant. Once you've said lifelong learning, you've pretty much defied, right? That never stops. But I want to drill down and drive it home because what I want you to catch is that as followers of Jesus, from the moment that you came to Jesus, God has a vision for your life. And it is a vision of ongoing, lifelong change, growth, transformation. And a key to that ongoing change, growth, transformation, a key is lifelong learning. Now, when I say lifelong learning today, I want to define what I'm talking about because as Christ followers, when I say lifelong learning, I think it's natural for us to think uh, in terms of learning the Word of God, uh, learning um, spiritual life, learning to listen and follow the Holy Spirit, maybe learning our spiritual gifts or learning how to pray. And of course, all of that is key to lifelong learning. That's probably the most important things. But when I talk about lifelong learning today, I'm talking about something much bigger than that. You know, when Jesus died and rose and ascended to the right hand of Father, he became King Jesus of all creation. And as King of creation, Jesus is the Lord, not just of our spiritual life, but all of life. Jesus is the Lord of science. Jesus is the Lord of medicine. Jesus is the Lord of biology. Jesus is the Lord of business. Jesus is the Lord of law. He's the the Lord of economy and politics. King Jesus rules all of creation. And so his vision for our life is not just that we'd figure out our spiritual life, but to figure out all of life. Uh, And so, uh, in fact, in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, I put the reference, not the verse, but the reference on your note sheet. Paul says that God's vision for our life is that we would be transformed 
Uh, and he says that, that transformation comes through a renewing of our minds. And so if we're going to change, if we're going to grow, if we're going to be transformed, if we're going to experience God's vision for our life, there is a change process we have to go through, and a key to that process is lifelong learning. Now, the reason this stands out to me today is that both Apollos and these 12 disciples are a model for us of a lifelong learner. They, they model for us what it looks like to approach life with what I would call a posture of lifelong learning. Um, and, and so I want you to think about them. Both of them, both of these groups, Apollos and this group and the 12, both of them knew a lot about God and God had done a major work in their life before Priscilla and Aquila or Paul showed up. Uh, God had been wor- at work in their life. Um, they had grown up probably Jewish, right? So they'd, they'd learned a lot of things there. They'd learned a lot about the word of God. Apollos had been probably to some of the top schools or rabbis in the world at that time. Uh, Apollos had been trained in the way of the Lord partially at that time. The, uh, the, they were all followers of John the Baptist. They knew about repentance. They knew about the prophet and so on. So, so God had been at work in their life. But what we see today is that God says to both of these groups, it's time for you to take the next step up. And so he brings new teachers in their life. He brings new lessons into their life that's going to allow them to take their relationship with God, their spiritual growth to a whole new level. And in the process, he's going to increase their impact for the kingdom. They're going to take the next step towards becoming the people that they are designed to be. And what I love about both Apollos and these 12 disciples is how open they are to learning. And what I love about, so like, like Apollos, is how humble this guy is. I mean, this guy is an accomplished man. He's got his PhD from the University of Alexandria. He probably speaks multiple languages. Very likely, he was schooled in rhetoric. He's a very gifted speaker. This guy is an accomplished man. He comes to Ephesus. He has passion in his life. He has eloquence in his life. He is deeply taught in the word of God. This guy has been trained to some degree in the the message of Jesus. He is a powerful person. He is a highly educated man. But what I love about him is that when God brings a blue-collar couple into his life, Priscilla and Aquila, tent makers, that Apollos has the humility to learn from anyone. Like, he doesn't say, who are you to teach me? I speak five languages. I know the Old Testament like the back of my hand. I could go on for hours. I have my PhD in divinity. That there's none of that. That he is just so humble and open. And because of that, not only his relationship with God and his spiritual understanding, but his impact, as we'll talk about in a few minutes, it goes to a whole new level. We'll come back to that. And what about these 12 disciples of John? I mean, they're deeply, they're deeply devoted to their way of life and their understanding of spiritual life. We don't know their story. We don't know how they met John the Baptist or had they met him or had they just learned about him, you know, through someone else. We don't know. How did they get here to Ephesus, 1,800 miles from Israel? How did they get there? But we know some things about them. We know they're disciples, they're not just fans of John the Baptist, they're disciples. And if you're a disciple of John the Baptist, it means you have embraced repentance. 
means you're loving God. It means you're loving people. You take this whole new life seriously. It's very likely that the 12 of them had a community with their families. They were living out, and they were perhaps waiting for Messiah. They were very serious about their way of life, their understanding of God. They're following the teaching of John the Baptist. And yet when the Apostle Paul comes, they are so open and so non-defensive. And when Paul asks the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believe? They don't get defensive. They don't try to pretend. They're just very honest. We've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And so they're really open. And as a result of that, Paul is able to share with them the message of Jesus in a life-transforming way. They receive the Holy Spirit. Their lives are transformed. They come into the kingdom of God. And I would love to know the next story of their life. But this is what we've seen. We've seen throughout the book of Acts that the first followers of Jesus were hungry to learn. They were hungry to grow. They were open to change. Uh, A couple examples of this. You remember back in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit first came on the day of Pentecost, remember 3,000 men and their families came to Jesus and we're told in Acts chapter 2 that these early church, they devoted themselves. You remember that? They devoted themselves to four things. And I don't know if you remember what the four things were, but the very first thing was they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were hungry to grow. They were hungry to learn. We're told that every day, do you remember that? Every day they met in the temple courts and house to house. They're just hungry to learn. We've seen a great example of this in Acts 17 recently. Remember when Paul came to the town of Berea? He'd been kicked out of uh, uh, the town of Thessalonica. He goes to Berea, and there in your note sheet, I put this verse. Is in Acts 17, 11, Luke says the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great what? Let's say it again. I want you to be more eager. Some great what? Eagerness. Eagerness. Good. It's great eagerness. And they examine the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was saying. They are hungry to learn and grow. They have a completely different paradigm. To them, Messiahs don't get crucified. Paul comes and gives them a completely different paradigm. One that's going to rock their world, cost them greatly if they buy in due to persecution. And yet they are hungry to grow and learn. In great eagerness, they open the word every day. Let's see if what, God, what he's saying is true. Because if Messiah has come, we don't want to miss it. You see? And what I've often noticed in Christian circles, and perhaps you've seen this. I've seen this here at Rocky Peak, that someone comes to Jesus and their life is completely transformed. It's upside down. I, mean, I could give you names of people. I'm, I've got images of people in my mind right now. They come to Jesus, their life is transformed, and they are so hungry to grow. It's like they can't get enough. I mean, every time the door's open, they're here, right? They are coming, they're on the edge of their seat, they can't wait. Like Sunday seems like uh, eternity away. They can't wait to get here every week for the worship and for the word of God and they're just hungry, and they're taking notes, and during the week, they're podcasting the messages from the past on the way to work, because they just want to grow, and like, what else can I do? And they get in the life group, and when they go to a life group, they can't wait to get there and be with their new brothers and sisters in Christ, and to, to learn what everyone has 
thought about the message or, or what they learned from the study or the homework or the book they're studying, and they're sharing, and they can't get it. Maybe they join CR, you know, work through some of the issues from their past, and they're building relationship there, and they're, they're wanting to serve, and they want to grow, and they want to start giving, and they just like, they are just hungry to learn, and they're like sponges, and they are changing and growing and being transformed before our eyes. But often if you speed up down the line, you find some of us who have been Christians for a few years. And we think we've kind of got it down now, you know? Like if I say, turn to the book of Ruth, you know how to do it. <laughs> if I say, let's turn to the book of first hesitations, <laughs> you know I'm joking, right? Like the new believers, like, I can't find it, I can't find it. Um, <laughs> It's like, is that about Peter? Um, uh, and so we've kind of got it down. I mean, we, we know how to come to church, you know. We, we know how to get here early to get our favorite donuts. We, we know where to park, you know, and the best way out of here. So we have the most time. And we park on the streets. So we don't have to deal with that. And we... Um, and, and we, you know, we've, we've found a place of service. We've been in several life groups now, and we've learned how to not do our homework and fake it until we make it. And we, um, and so we, we come in, and we, we love church, and we're, you know, we're part of the body here, and we have friends here now, but we're just kind of coasting. And what's happened is that we think we've arrived. Like, our vision of what it means to be a Christ follower is like here, and we started here. And the first two or three years, we went from here to here, and now we think we've got it down. We fit in pretty well. We know which door to go in. We know where the bathrooms are. So we're here. We know it's a weird church. You have to go outside to go to the bathroom. Uh, Big outhouse. No. Uh, And so this is our vision that we've arrived. And so we kind of put it in neutral. And we begin to coast because we think that we've kind of caught up with everyone. But the reality is, is that God's vision for our life is not here, it's here. And somehow we've missed that. And what happens when you put your life in neutral is that you slowly begin to slow down. And if you stay in neutral long enough, you begin to coast. And if you stay there long enough, you can even begin to roll backwards. And so God's vision for our life is so much bigger. And here's what we miss. What we miss when we fall in this trap is we miss what I call the what-ifs and the might-have-beens. You see, the moment we stop learning, we stop growing. And we stop growing, we stop becoming the person we were created to be and having the impact we were created to have. You see, here's the thing. When we stop learning, we stop growing, we start ripping off not just ourselves, but everyone else in our life. Do you, do you realize that like, if you're here and you're a mom and you are not learning and you are not growing, do you realize you are ripping off your kids and you're crippling them for life? Do you realize that you are their Priscilla and Aquila? You're the one to come alongside and help them take those next steps into their future. 
And if you're not growing, if you're not learning, you can't, you can't do it. And you're creating a model of what it means to be a follow Jesus that is a horrendous model. Like if you're a father here and you have kids and you're not learning and growing, you are presenting a picture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus that is a complete lie. And you have a son that's following you and looking up to you and you are sabotaging your son's future. Because to him, you are the standard. Do you know how hard it is for a son to grow up with a father who claims to be a Christ follower, but not learning, not growing, not achieving, not becoming who they're created to be? Do you know how hard it is for a son to come to the conviction, my father had it wrong, and if I want to follow Jesus, I have to do it differently? You know how hard that is? That is a big hurdle. When we are not growing, we are not just ripping off ourselves. We are ripping off everyone around us. We're ripping off our spouse. We're ripping off our kids. We're ripping off our coworkers. We're ripping off our ministry team. And we are ripping off the kingdom of God. Because you were designed for greatness. You have been chosen before time to play an important part of an epic adventure. Chosen before time, given God's spirit, supernaturally equipped with gifts to make a difference and to play a huge role in the coming of God's kingdom. And when one of us stops growing, the ripple effect goes on for generations. And I want you to see it in, you see it on the positive side of Apollos. You know, here's Apollos, right? Gifted guy, well-educated guy, already has potential, but God wants to take him to the next level. And so he brings in Priscilla and Aquila. Now, what would have happened if he would have blown them off and said, I don't need you. Here's who I am. Here's my resume. Come back when you have a doctorate and we'll talk. What would have happened? He would have missed out on what God had for him, but catch this, he would have been ripping off the church. Because here's what's going to happen. He's going to go to Achaia. He's been a great help. In fact, there in your note sheet, the Apostle Paul will write back in a couple years to the Corinthians, and he will say, I planted the seed. In other words, when I came to Corinth, I planted the seed. I started you off on your spiritual journey. But he said, Apollos, what? Watered it. So let me ask, what is more important, to plant a seed or to water it? Fair question. It doesn't really work to water it if it's not planted. But if you plant it and don't water it, it's going to die. All right, so, so what happened is that God has a vision for the church of Corinth, and God is going to send them in true, incredibly gifted leaders. He's going to send them Paul to plan it, get it started. He's going to send them Apollos. What would have happened had Apollos not listened to Priscilla and Aquila? He wouldn't have known the full story of Jesus. He couldn't have gone. This verse would never be written that I planted and Apollos watered it. And many times in our life, we will start strong with Jesus. Someone plants the seed, but we stop watering. We stop growing. 
And all of a sudden, our lives that were designed to be in Isaiah, an oak of righteousness, is a small scrub oak, and we think we've arrived. You see, when we are not continuing to grow, learn, move to the next level, we are missing out on the might have beens and the what ifs of our life. And in the process, we're not just ripping off ourselves, we are ripping off, ripping off everyone else that we were designed like Apollos to have impact on. So that leads to three questions then. On your note sheet, learning one on one, three key questions. I got three questions for you. Number one, the first question I would ask, if we went to Starbucks together today after the service, let's make it before the service. Let's say you hadn't heard this sermon because if you had, you, your answer might be different. But let's say we we're going out to Starbucks and I said, here's my question. What are you learning? Okay, here's the question. What are you learning? Now, as I ask that question, remember what, how I'm defining lifelong learning. I'm not just saying spiritual learning. It could be that. It, your answer could be, well, here's what God's teaching me in the Word or by listening to the Spirit. It, that'd be a great answer. Those are, that's awesome. Um, but remember, I'm not just saying, what are you learning, like in the Bible or something. I'm saying, what is the Holy Spirit teaching you in your life? Because it could be about anything. It could be about your marriage. It could be about parenting. It could be about an attitude or a priority. It could be about a value. It could be about uh, uh, your time. Um, it could be your schedule. It could be about finance. It could be about your workplace. It could be, uh, it could be anything, right? Because Jesus is the Lord of all. So the question is, you know, if we went out and I asked you, uh, what are you learning? The question is for you today, what would you say? And would you have an answer for me or would you have that deer in the headlights look? Like, uh... What do you mean? Uh, could you be more specific? Um, you mean like, like um, Dodgers? Uh, like, yeah. Um, and here's what I want to suggest: if your answer is, I can't think of anything, it's a good chance that you've stopped growing. Okay? I'm not saying for sure, but if you can't say, here's what I'm learning. And I, it might take a second or two. I'm not saying you have rep talk. But if you can't look at your life for the last week, month, few months, and say, yeah, here's what God's teaching me. Here's what I've been learning. If you can't say that, chances are you're not growing. That somehow you've lost God's vision for your life. Uh, because one of the things the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit comes. When the Holy Spirit comes, he will be your teacher. And he will lead you into all truth. So here's a, great, here's a great sign. If you're bored as a Christian, you, as the British used to say, you have the wrong end of the stick. Like if, if your life is boring, if you say, I'm bored as a Christian, then something is desperately wrong. Because Jesus didn't die so you could be bored. His vision for your life is so big. If you could just have for a, a, just a moment, a glimpse, it would blow you away. His vision for you is so big. Your future is so profound. Remember what Paul said, no eye, has, no eye can see, no mind has conceived what God has in store for his people. It's never entered into the mind of man, Paul said. 
God's vision is so big, we can only begin to scratch the surface. You are an eternal person. You have been chosen before time began. You are a son or daughter of the king. You've been filled with his Holy Spirit. You have gifts to make a difference. He's got a role for your life and works that he's chosen before time began. Your life is amazing. And if you are bored, it's, it's not like, well, you're bad. I'm, I'm not mad at you. Right? If you're bored, I'm just saying something is wrong. If you're bored, something is wrong. If you're not learning, if you're not growing, if you're not excited about what you're learning or what God's teaching you and how he's shaping your life, something is wrong. That we're on the wrong path. So what are you learning? Number two. Second question is, this is an important one. How do you learn best? Now, this is important because we all have different learning styles. Like, often my heart goes out to men, um, and I mean women too, but uh, in this case, more uh, men who are not readers. Like, some of you guys are, you're not readers, right? And so whenever we talk about, like, a topic like, say, lifelong learning, you go to, oh, I'm not a reader. And so you start feeling like second class or I could ever grow. Hey, here's the thing. We, we all learn different ways. There are many different ways. God has designed us there. We have different learning styles. Um, so, for example, like some of you learn best in large group teaching situations. Like you love the weekends. or Like you learn best here. Others of you, you learn here, but when you really learn is when you get into a small group and you can talk it out. You think out loud, you need to hear from others, and it's like in a small group where you can talk it out is where the lights really go on. Some of you learn best on your own. You can learn well in a large group, you can learn in a small group, but you really, your deepest learning, it happens on your own. Some of us here are readers, some of us are listeners. We take in information. Some of us are more uh, kinetic type learners, we learn by doing. So some of you learn best by having a lot of information and then going and trying something. Some of you learn best with just a little bit of information, going and trying something, and then coming back and learning. So we all have different styles. The question I'm asking is, how do you learn best? You know, sometimes this takes a while to learn. Now, can I tell you that uh, this last year has been a tremendous year of learning for me in new ways. Uh, like for me, I have always thought of myself, my primary way of learning, and it may be still true, is reading. Right? Learning on my own, reading, uh, large group things, good for me. Uh, not so much small group. I don't learn a lot in a small group. I like leading a small group. I don't learn a lot there. I, I learn in large group things. I learn in reading. So I thought of myself as a reader. Well, about a year ago, um, that God began doing some new things in my life and just calling me to uh, listen to certain podcasts on a regular basis, and that led to audiobook listening. And now, this year has been a year of incredible learning. Uh, it's been incre- incredible through, through audiobooks. If you would have asked me two years ago, do you listen to audiobooks? I would have said no. Why not? I, I don't learn that way. And now, I've had people, uh, I've led small groups for men, like leadership circles where we read a book a month uh, to learn about leadership, and I've had some of the men I've invited say, I've never read a book in my life. I said, well, why don't you just come and join us? I know it'll be hard for you, but I think it'll be good. And they said, yeah, I'll do that. And I've had them, after a year of doing that, say, my life has been absolutely transformed. I didn't think I was a reader, 
But now I have this insatiable hunger to learn. And, and I think five years later, they'll come back to me and say, man, I am just such a reader now. So sometimes it takes a while to figure out how you learn. But here's the thing. Normally, if you stand back from your life and just ask a simple question, when have I grown the most? What were the components of my life that caused me to grow? You can figure this out. Like, when was I learning the most? When was I most excited? What were the ingredients? Was it large group? Was it small group? Was it some combination? Was it one-on-one? Was it reading book with friends? Was it uh, podcasting? Was it this? You know, how do you learn the best? Now, number three, the third question is how intentional is your learning? In other words, once you figure out this is how I learn best, then the question is, well, how intentional are you being about pursuing that learning? Like if I were to look at your calendar right now, would I see in there that you've worked into your calendar uh, kind of a habit of learning, a schedule of learning? Um, so for example, uh, in the last couple months, I've seen on my internet feeds, uh, news feeds and stuff, I've seen an article that keeps popping up called five hour, uh, The Five-Hour Rule. I don't know if any of you have seen that. But it's uh, based on Benjamin Franklin. The Benjamin Franklin, one of his practices was he would spend at least an hour every day in learning something new. This is a discipline of his life. And it was a, a key to his success. So the article would go on to talk about, you know, Bill Gates or Warren Buffett or someone like that. And that one of the keys is that people are successful in life. One thing they have in common is they're often learners and they're intentional about their learning. And so they suggest maybe just an hour a day for five hours, uh, five days a week. Um, and so uh, one of my favorite kind of spiritual mentors in life is uh, Oswald Chambers. And Oswald Chambers, he put it like this on your note sheet. He said, you don't even need an hour. Uh, just uh, 15 minutes a day will work. He says, a quarter of an hour a day on any subject will make you a master of that subject. Consistency is the key. And that's powerful to think that your life and your learning could skyrocket or change just by being intentional 15 minutes a day. It's interesting. Um, you know, this last uh, year in the spring, um, I came across a passage of Scripture that really challenged me. Uh, it was in Timothy, 1 Timothy 4. The Apostle Paul's talking to his mentee, uh, Timothy, who's the bishop of Ephesus, the churches of Ephesus. And, uh, and he challenges him to be a lifelong learner. He challenges him to, to, to really be intentional about his growth. And the, the word he uses in Greek, he says, uh, he says, train yourself for growth. And the word he uses for train is the Greek word gymnazo. It's where we get our word gymnasium. It's an athletic term. So we've just watched the Olympics. Obviously, these world-class athletes train for their growth. And so Paul is using that metaphor in the same way you would train for physical success. He says, um, train yourself for godliness. And so there in your note sheet, he says, uh, train yourself, notice gymnazo, to be godly. He says, be diligent, intentional in these matters, Give yourself what? Holy to them um, so that everyone may see your what? Progress. He says that, that if we're doing life well, that everyone should see our progress. From time to time, throughout my whole ministry career, from to, I'll have someone come up to me and they'll say, you have gotten so much better as a preacher. <laughs> and so I'm not really sure like what they're saying, like you used to suck or, I, you know, but... <laughs> Um, 
But I always tell them the same thing. Well, I'd hope so. Man, I work at this really hard. I hope I'm getting better. Like if I'm not getting better, if I'm not better now than five years, something is wrong. You should be able to see my progress, right? And I should be able to see yours. Like if you're in a life group, you're leading a ministry. You're in kids' ministry. You should be better now than you were five years ago. If you lead a small group of kids, you should be getting better. If you're married, you should be a better wife or a better husband. You should be better at your finances. You should be a better employee or a better boss. That everyone should see our progress. If people look at us and go, that's just Joe. You know, he's been the same old Joe. That is not a good idea, right? <laughs> like, we don't want the same old Joe. We want Joe 2.0, right? <laughs> All right. So the question then is, are you intentional about your growth? Now, here's the thing. My hunch in a room like this is if I were to say, uh, are you being intentional, that many of us would say, I really want to be more intentional, but I don't have enough time, time right? And, you know, honestly, that may be true. I don't know your life. That may be true. But I think the reality is in our life that many times, it's not that we don't have the time. It's how we use the time we have. And so let's give you an example. Like, I, I went on the Internet this week, and I asked Rabbi Google. I... <laughs> I asked the master, uh, hey, how, many t- how many hours does the average American spend watching TV every day? Yeah, very good. So uh, Rabbi Google said, the average American, now you may be more, <laughs> you may be less, but the average American spends five hours a day watching TV. Okay, so like I said, you might be you know, you might be at 45, you know, average is 35. Uh, but you know, and here's my hunch. My hunch is, is some of those average Americans are average Christians. And they would be here listening to this message. They say, I would love to be more intentional about growth. I just don't have the time. <laughs> you know, uh, I, I mean, between reality TV and the NFL <laughs> and the news and late night, you know, Jimmy Fallon, I... I just, my life is booked. Um, (laughs) But stop and think about this, that, stop and think about this, that, uh, like, many of us have a commute, like, we we go to work every day, right, or, you know, when we feel like, whatever. Uh, We go to work, right, and, and I'm, and so, I'm really lucky, I've got a 15-minute commute, Um, it's actually 16, but I can make it in 12, but uh, (laughs) I've got a 15-minute commute, not really long. Hey, but even a 15-minute commute gives me 30 minutes a day, right? To invest, right? That's twice what Chambers says I need. Um, if you have an hour commute, some of you have a two-hour commute, uh, what are we doing with that time? Uh, we could be listening to the Word. Uh, we could be listening to a great podcast or a message. We could be listening to a great audio book. There's a lot of ways we could make these other time. What about social media? How much time do you spend on Facebook or social media or just scrolling through the internet? Just reading news feeds, right? Uh, uh, how much time do you spend on video games? Now, just to be super clear here, I'm not trying to guilt you out. I realize I'm doing a good job of it, but <laughs> I'm not trying to do that. Uh, 
All I want, all I'm saying is, I'm not even saying these things are bad things. I just want to remind you of one of the most important principles in life, and that is the good is often the enemy of the best. And so the question is, in your life, how intentional are you being? And are there steps that you could take to make learning a habit in your life? Here's the thing. There are so many ways to go after this. You know, uh, inside your program today, we put a little bookmark. And we just, you know, took a little survey. Some of our leaders here and staff, maybe favorite apps or favorite uh, uh, resources, uh, podcasts or whatever. You might find that helpful. Uh, after the service today, in the, in the, the, in the uh, bookstore, we've got a team of pastors that, that they're there. Maybe you want to learn about marriage. You want to learn about finance. You want to learn about your spiritual life, something like that, parenting. And we've got a team out there. They'd love to help you find the right book if God's leading you that way. Um, but there are so many ways to learn. And here's what I truly believe. It's not about the technique. The Holy Spirit is incredibly creative. If you're hungry to learn, the Holy Spirit has a way of bringing resources, Priscilla's and Aquila's, the right books, the right podcast, the right message, the right... The Holy Spirit is so incredibly creative. What's most important is our posture of heart. There's an old proverb that says, when the student is ready to learn, the teacher will emerge. And I believe that. When we are hungry to grow, we come before the Lord and say, I want to grow. I don't want to live a life of what ifs or might have been. I want to seize the day. I want everything you have for me. I don't want to waste my life. I want my life to be a pebble that goes into time itself and send ripples out over generations. I want everything you have for me, God. And so would you teach me how to redeem the time, how to invest in my learning and my growth, not just for my sake, but for the sake of everyone I touch. I believe that when we pursue God in that way, the Holy Spirit is incredibly creative. And he will come alongside and you watch him. Bring Priscilla's and Aquila's, bring Apostle Paul's, bring this, bring that. One thing leads to another. And pretty soon you are learning at high speed. Let's pray together. Father, as we come before you today as a church, God, we truly want to pursue you. And God, we, we know it starts at a heart level, so we ask that you would just give us a heart to pursue you, to see what things that are most valuable in life, that we would not rip off others, that we would not live a life of what-ifs or might-have-beens, that we would seize the day, carpe diem, and that we would embrace all that you have for us, living out this incredible vision, as your word says, works created for us before the foundation of the earth. And so, God, we want to be that church. We want to be that people. We pray you give us a passion to seek you, to grow, to change, to learn. And we pray, God, as we bring you our tithes, our offerings, as we pursue you and worship, you'd meet us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we worship? And God, that's our prayer, that we would be a church that pursues you. And I, I can't help but think, as I listen to the words of that song, that how Apollos would sing that song, how these 12 disciples of John would enter in. There's desperate for more of you that they wanted to go deeper, they wanted to know more. May we be that church. May we live those lives that we would not 
live lives of what if or might have been, but we would run hard. We would listen well. We'd sit on the edge of our seat. We would be open to what you're saying. We'd be intentional about learning. That as we're intentional about learning, we'd be growing and changing, transform. Then not only our own lives, but making impact. That pebble in the, in the, in the pond that sends out ripples for eternity. And so, God, we make this our prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen, Rocky Peak. Amen. Hey, a couple things as we go. Number one, don't forget, you need prayer about anything, right wall, badges, people with badges. We would love to pray with you. Number two, if you need to sign up for a life group out in the patio, they'll be there to help you. Number three, if you want to check out in the resources and the the uh, bookstore, you like God's putting that in our heart. We have some pastors to help guide you. Uh, next week, I'll be back uh, teaching on spiritual warfare, which we'll see is a major theme in uh, Ephesus as the, the gospel goes out there. So it'd be an important message, a part of our learning, uh, the authority we have in Christ, what we need to do to experience the freedom, the way we need to renounce the past and the dark side to move into that freedom that Jesus came to give us. So it's a great time. So hoping you'll be with us next week. Until then, Uh, May this be a week of lifelong learning. May it be a week where we are open to the leading of the Holy Spirit. May it be a week as we listen and follow that we become intentional in our lives about setting aside time, making habits of learning in our life that we might grow, that we might be changed, that we might be transformed, and we might have impact and seize the day. Amen? Amen? God bless you guys. Love you. See you next week.